The Bellows Trash versus Treasure. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, as usual, Michael Cruz, and as promised, another recording of The Bellows, a monthly panel discussion about the art and business of theatre production. This week, Trash versus Treasure. Now, nothing is more symbolic of the transient nature of theatre than the bin in which rests the flats, risers, braces, and boxes that just 30 minutes ago were a living and breathing set. Moderator Kevin Hudson is joined by designer and an associate professor of ecological design for performance at York University, Ian Garrett, and freelance PMTD Ryan Wilson in this discussion about when and when not to recycle, repurpose, or reuse the physical trappings of theater. This discussion took place back on October 24th, 2017 at the Witchwood Barns, thanks to Delia Katz, and is a product of the hard work of The Bellows, which includes Pip Bradford, Rebecca Hooten, Christopher Ross, Kevin Hudson, and yours truly. Once again, I want to encourage you to go to patreon.com to support the title block to help cover the costs of producing this show. And thanks to those of you who support the show every month. If you have any comments about the show, please forward them to thetitleblock at gmail.com or contact us through Facebook or Twitter. I would love to hear from you. And now, The Bellows, Trash versus Treasure, where Rebecca and Pip start us off. So hi everybody and welcome to The Bellows today. Yay! Hi! Hi. Uh, So my name is Pip Bradford. I'm Rebecca Hooten. Uh, this person behind me is Kevin Hudson. Hello. Uh, and we are today's representatives of the Bellows. Uh, missing today are Christopher Ross and Michael Cruz, both wonderful humans, just not here. So, whatever. <laughs> screw, <this guy>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, screw them, Rebecca. They're not here. Sucks to be them, is what I mean. Because look at all you beautiful people. Anyway. Yeah, you're here. <laughs> uh, so before we start, uh, we'd like to acknowledge the tra- traditional keepers of this land, the Anishinaabek peoples, the Mississaugas of New Credit, the Métis, and the Haudenosaunee. Uh, Christopher usually has a whole bit about how you know we they've lived on this land for thousands of years, and we owe them a lot and all that kind of thing. And I don't know how to say it properly, but thanks, guys. You're wonderful humans in the past. Uh, carrying on. And, and the present. And the present. And the present. And the present. Yes. We're very good at acknowledging things. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> anyways, welcome to today's so panel uh, of the Bellows. Uh, we are having a wonderful panel today on sustainability uh, in the arts. We called it Trash versus Treasure uh, because a lot of the times when we're working on shows, uh, you build a show and you build a show and it's very specific to the show. And you build a set and you spend a lot of time and resources creating a thing, but it only works that one time for three weeks, four weeks, a week, and then it's gone forever. And that, Kevin, could we turn off our phone, please? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, and, and so it, it is a very wasteful industry. And so we're really interested in discussing ways in which we can make it less wasteful. Absolutely. Um, 
we'd like to thank uh, Witchwood Barnes, and we've already done it before, not on uh, on the podcast, but I think it bears but repeating. Definitely on the podcast. Yes. We'd like to thank Witchwood Theatre, uh, Solar Stage at Witchwood Theatre, for hosting us tonight. Dahlia Katz uh, is giving me the nod, and, and she likes us. That's all we have to <laughs> we say like about her. that, and we like her. Uh, I think we also, who else do we also mention? We also mentioned Michael Cruz at the Title Block Podcast, who always hosts our podcast every month. Uh, which is super, super great. Mm-hmm. And uh, tip your bartenders. We tip your bartender. His name friend. is Matt. He's wonderful. We love him. And I think uh, that's about it. it. I think we actually should get started on the panel. Rebecca's going to moderate the panel this month. So, uh, yay. Good job, Rebecca. Yay. All right. Um, so I'm going to pull Kevin Hudson and say uh, to my left, who are you and what do you do? My name's Ryan. I'm the head scenic carpenter at YPT, which is Young People's Theatre. Uh, I'm Ian Garrett. Uh, I teach sustainability in uh, theatre and the arts at York, uh, sustainable design for performance specifically. I run an organization called the Center for Sustainable Practice in the Arts. And I can be found lighting and video designing a lot of the time. Great. Right on. Uh, I'm Kevin Hudson. I'm a, a bellows person, also a project manager at Production Canada, um, which uh, does not particularly concern sustainability, let's say. What does Production <laughs> Canada do? Production Canada is uh, essentially a scene shop. We started as a scene shop. We also do some event management. Uh, but mostly we build scenery and install scenery for events, um, theaters, um, corporate events, and such. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have written down here, define sustainability and what ca- characterizes sustainable theater. And I think before we, like, involved in that question is what what do you think brings you here today? We know it brings you in here, but what brings the rest <laughs> of you here? What do you think about sustainability? I think sustainability is very important and also very non-topical or non-in fashion right now. This season this year it used to seem to be really cool to talk about like four or five years ago and it's not and so I'm really excited to be able to talk about it tonight I think it's very important uh, especially like you guys were saying that things are very wasteful and we throw lots of things out Um, I think it's a very complicated issue where we have things like putting things in landfills things like burning or vaporizing things that we use to build scenery and put in the air is also really bad for the environment so it's complicated and it costs a lot of money and takes a lot of money and energy to address and talk about and not a lot of theater companies are in any position to work on anything that costs any more money or takes any more resources than they already are using so it's great that we can talk about it here how about uh, does anyone want to add uh, how how you would define sustainability? Um, I think we're talking about environmental sustainability largely. Um, I don't think we're talking about financial sustainability. So it's a whole other panel. I think different panel. Yeah. totally different panel. Sorry, yeah, um, mental health sustainability. That's November. Yeah. <laughs> um, Communities. Yeah, I was, we're we're getting to it. But okay. uh, <laughs> so, so I think I think it's safe to say we're talking. Is everybody understanding the understanding that we're talking about environmental sustainability? Is that is that what people are interested in hearing about? 
Excellent. Yes. Okay, yeah. Yay! Yay! Okay. Um, yeah, and so as a, you know, scenic carpenter, largely, I mean, I've been a plumber, I've been a construction worker, uh, I've been a scenic carpenter for a long time, and, you know, <laughs> freelance PM and blah, blah. I've thrown a lot of stuff in the garbage, personally. Like, a lot of stuff in the garbage. Construction is one of the most wasteful industries around. Um, most of what they do is... You think it's permanent, but it has a lifespan, and it gets ground up and thrown in the garbage. Um, houses get knocked down and renovated, and yeah, most of those bricks and mortar and stuff just gets ground up and thrown out. Um, for in the arts, particularly in what we do, I think, um, there's a number of sort of unique challenges, and, and what Pip alluded to in the intro is that we want our experiences to be unique, so there's very little chance of transferring somebody's set from one show to the next, right? That's not appealing to an artist necessarily. And people don't write stories with the same setting. Like if every play took place in the same dirty hotel room, then every theater would just need one set and it would be fine. At the uh, dirty hotel room theater? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like if everything was... Anyway, yeah. Um, and that would be fine, but that's not the case. Um, so I think in terms of when it comes to creating unique experiences for people, we face a super difficult challenge in making that in any way jive with being good tenants of the landscape. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I don't think anybody's actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't, I'm sure people think about it. But it's just, it's not a primary concern or a going concern really in our our working culture. So, Ian, can I throw this to you? Because you are teaching the youth of our... Yeah, I, I was sort of holding back. Yes. <laughs> because I'm going to cough up a lung. No, I was sort of holding back because I can... I have some beer. Yeah, that's <laughs> good enough. Uh, but, because um, I don't want to like throw it out with... Um, leading off with a like an academic definition of sustainability which because i want to do at times we I mean, feel free uh, yeah. yeah so i i want to i want to now uh so uh the way that especially within teaching and doing research around sustainability as applies to theater and the arts in general uh the way that i look at sustainability is through like the definitions of sustainable development and so those come out of the Brundtland Commission report of the UN in the early 80s uh, that uh, Harlem Brundtland led and has led to like the sustainable development goals that when you hear the UN coming together to have a conference of the parties or the COP meetings, which the 23rd will be in Bonn, Germany uh, next month. Um, so maybe it, it might conflict with this if, if you wanted to go to both, <laughs> that what they're negotiating are uh, environmental goals and uh, also how those then impact uh, world economies and uh, and societies. So when I'm looking at sustainability, and though I know that we're, you know, we're focusing on environmental sustainability here, I'm thinking about it also in terms of how it interacts with and how it balances with and how there's value exchange between like the impact of art making and especially theater, because that's my own practice, on uh, societies and the makeup of society and local economies and how you make choices based off of all of those. Um, so uh, as an example of a choice that I like to use, if you had a set, 
Um, and it was the most like affecting piece of theater that got everybody to change their mind and like scrap their cars and recycle everything and and basically become excellent tenants of the earth. But the set was made out of a pile of burning tires, like which is objectively a bad thing for the environment. You should not burn tires um, <laughs> if if environmentalism is your goal. Yeah. Uh, that but because it's the arts and it could have that effect, there is a valid discussion to be, uh, to be had between those two sides of that coin. Because um, I, I agree that we're dealing with very unique things within the arts that uh, you know we're, we're building for and making for impermanence most of the time. Like the longest running theater show is like decades maybe. And then the next one is like a decade and then most of them are weeks. And then we have a different relationship with materials and that we're looking at like creating facsimiles based off of like what we're trying to communicate. And we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, but the, like, the art is the thing. You can't, like, it's very hard to make theater where the central concept is sustainability. You can do that with architecture. Uh, you can do that with like other uh, creative pursuits, uh, but you can't really do it with theater. And then that all asks you to change either both how, you're, how you work, and you have to decide if you're comfortable with that, and what you make, and if you're comfortable with that. Uh, which are hard things to be to reconcile with, especially if you're used to making in a specific way. Absolutely, yeah. I was reading an article uh, in preparation for this about uh, that the sort of the basics of changing things to make things sustainable does not come from uh, actually the the product that you're making, but the the processes that go before that. So the sort of uh, how you decide to make a thing, how like starting from a very base point of the the lawmakers and the whatever so it's interesting that you bring that up um so so a question on along those terms of if it's not about physically let's make this set with and let's get into this what you guys were talking about how to make things something actually sustainable physically uh just to start here what are the changes that you can make before you even put a play uh into the works that you could do to make something sustainable I feel like you te probably teach kids how to make these choices. Kids. I'd say getting to it early. Like, it's just... I, the way that I approach it and when we're teaching it, uh, it's about a, a value. It's like instilling sustainability as a value as this is important to the way that I'm making things so that I'm open to these other choices that I might make. Uh, and it's easier to make those choices earlier in a process of making things. Uh, that is unfortunately um, one of the great luxuries of, I mean, at York we have a lot of time because people are doing things for the first time, so we put that into the system. But in just about every process, like there could be more time because it becomes about making those decisions. Because uh, like, so I'm a lighting designer, and when I'm talking, to, someone says like, how do you, how do you design lights sustainably? And it, it turns into a conversation around like technology, that which gets into what you're saying about like, there's a lot of crap that goes into a, an LED light that like is not good uh, and has to be shipped around. And if you already have a working light, it's like, don't buy a new car if you don't need a new car. But that the more specific design decision that you make so that you're supporting the art is the most sustainable choice. And in terms of what you guys were talking about before, once you are actually in the process of making something, how do you make those choices that, if, if you can, to make them more sustainable, make a more sustainable set? I would say be specific 
a lot of people talk about wanting to be more environmentally friendly, but that could mean a lot of different things and a lot of different criteria and a lot of different issues that you want to uh, try to reduce. So if it's something that you want to do, I think you need to make a, uh, at least, a, like you were saying, a list of principles or a list of goals. And you have to be really specific. So if you want to keep things out of a landfill, that's a reasonable thing to try to pursue. If you want to use elect less electricity, that's a reasonable thing to pursue. If you want to um, not use any spray paint or any... Uh, you know, it talks into pollutants that will be yeah, distributed yeah. in the air. That's another reasonable thing. But if you just say we want our play to be green, it's very and that's something I challenge my employer and other people at the theater company I work at a lot is to stop using that term and to stop using the term sustainability because even Kevin Kadu add a word to be more specific for sustainability. And if we're gonna apply that to lights versus scenery that's a very different mm -hmm. goal if we're going to apply that to how our audience comes in how we heat our theater all of those things how we build costumes which is not something i know much about um so you have to be really specific so that you can have a very specific sentence or two to use as a guiding rule or mandate or principle because all theaters know how to write a two or three sentence mandate and then do all of their work within that so uh, if you can do the same thing with your sustainability goals i think you'd be more have a lot more chance of success it's super well said I think. yep yeah, <laughs> totally. that was awesome. and we're done thanks everyone yeah totally. <laughs> well yeah i was thinking so specifically like material sustainability concerns me a lot when i'm as a carpenter right so every now and then this is going to get a little technical but so a sheet of luon is you know three sixteenths of an inch it's super thin plywood um, and basically what it is, is somebody somewhere goes to a random hardwood tree in the tropics, doesn't matter where, um, and they cut it down and they peel it. And then you get these sheets of Luan, and it is literally a random species of hardwood. It used to be a particular, like Luan was a, or Maranti ply was a particular thing, but now it's just a random sheet of whatever, um, with these hardness characteristics. And every now and then you look at the back of a sheet of plywood and it's beautiful. Like it's just, it's a heartbreakingly beautiful piece of wood. And I try and save as many of them as I possibly can, but like they have tiger stripes of leopard prints. They're like these beautiful chocolate browns that if you could sell it specifically, they would be thousands of dollars a sheet um, because there's nothing else like it. And it's because it's literally just a random hardwood tree wood, but nobody's managing that population, right? Nobody's looking after those trees. Nobody's cataloging what species that tree is or where it came from or who cares. So that might be the very last of that species that I'm trying to save and turn into a pretty cabinet or something. Um, and that is the basic sheet good that our theater walls are made of, is a random piece of hardwood from wherever. Um, and that it, the flat that you lean against may be the last of its kind forever. And that's like material sustainability concerns me a great deal. Um, because we pay $11 a sheet for Luan if you buy it in enough quantity, and we do. Um, so yeah, for $10 a sheet, you could potentially have the last of a species. And that's crazy to me. Yeah, that's wild. Um, and we were talking about, yeah, there's, there is an alternative. It's probably the only one I know about. Um, I may as well say it's Revolution Ply. It's, I think it's bamboo. 
Um, or something? I think it says it's, uh, says it's plantation grown yeah. from the United States of America yeah. in a sustainable forest plantation. So they're yeah. not cutting down random old growth forests. They're cutting down farmed Managed. trees that they totally. planted yeah. for that purpose that are probably monoculture. Mm-hmm. There's probably no shrubs or bushes or insects living on that farm. Yeah. But the yeah. other thing I was going to say about your point that it probably comes from wherever it probably doesn't come from wherever it probably comes from a third world or developing country or it absolutely does. some yeah. other yeah, yeah. place it's very far away yeah where people are paid very little mm-hmm. so they have very little concern for yeah the environment around yeah. them they just are trying to survive totally yeah I'm, certainly no one's trumping somebody's survivability for our sustainability guilt that's one thing I like about trying to source materials locally slash from America or Canada. There's yeah. very little of it mm-hmm. made here as far as plywood, but yeah. people in America are paid $14 at the least, maybe 13 mm-hmm. Some of them are probably getting 20 or $25. So those types of decisions can, little decisions can mean a lot when you're trying to alleviate some kind yeah. of thing. Both socially and then environmentally, because not just like the growth, but just the transportation of it. It uh, if it's coming from less far away, it's there's less of that infrastructure that goes into it, and also depending on the shipping uh, uh, techniques for that. I mean, I think about it more in terms of like when I'm dealing with, when I'm looking at something and analyzing something where someone's gone on like tour and moving gear around because so many people like to fly that around, and it takes a lot of fuel to defeat gravity uh so if you can just like push something along the road it's already better in logistics planning but even if you're talking about shipping raw materials uh this that distance that it has to come in whatever container from wherever it is is a significant impact there than Mm -hmm. as opposed to going like 100 200 a few hundred miles yeah i think we should also spare a thought for the people good people of british columbia who are just now less on fire than they were last month. Um, and that shut down a whole bunch of lumber mills. Yeah. And, yeah. Made the price of plywood ridiculous. <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah. Before we carry on, does anybody in the audience have any questions or comments or discussion, something? If not, go ahead. Wait, wait, it's a bit. <laughs> Just for the podcast. No, it's because if you don't say into the microphone for the podcast, so you have to come a little and bit if it's closer on the if that's okay. These days, it, yeah, it didn't happen. Exist. <laughs> well, I mean, like 75% of our audience is on the podcast. Like, we are not all of the people who care about what you're saying. All right, this is very. <laughs> cared enough to show up, yeah? Uh, this is very small. You said that when you're considering. You in the middle, I've forgotten your name. Ian. Ian. Uh, when you're considering sustainability, it's. You consider how it intersects with theater, societies, and what is that third thing? Economy. Economy. Yes. Thank you. That's it. it was that was a, good a very note. specific question. Yeah. It was a very specific I mean, question. We could follow along immediately, yeah. right? Because it is kind of, especially with material sustainability on my end, like I made the point that Luan is $11 a sheet, mm-hmm. and Revolution Ply is, what, 20 Whatever. I think it's like 17. Sure. But it's still, you know. It's still it's, more. Yeah, it's still, it's a 50%. yeah. percent A big yeah. jump. And so when you're... Telling somebody they can have 12 walls instead of eight. It's pretty, or eight walls instead of 12, rather. Like, it's tough. 
But now that's become the only product we offer. Yeah. So if another company comes to us looking for some scenery built, mm-hmm. we don't give them the option yeah. to cut down on rainforest. They have only yeah. one material option. Which is what got to your point about specificity, right? Like if yeah. you're being specific about what your sustainability goals are, then you can, you can include that in a strategy. And I was thinking about this on, when I was thinking about things that we might talk about in the panel is some this idea that to, to further these ideas, you have to have some amount of power or you have to have mm-hmm. some amount of authority, which usually is connected to money. Yeah. Um, there's other ways of doing it, um, like using labor laws uh, to you know, prevent your employer from forcing you to use products that are unsafe for you or the environment. Um, but there's, it's very difficult if you have no power and no... Uh, decision-making ability or authority to to offer those things um so like at ypt we've i have and my former uh boss the td we were very against using styrofoam and other foams as a scenic element so people would come to us and say we want you to build us a tree like this like this like this we would start brainstorming ways of doing that and they would say well what about foam and we would say we don't work in foam Mm -hmm. we don't work in styrofoam we didn't know a lot about that it, and we didn't know a lot about the detail uh, processes and priorities and criteria of why it was bad for the environment. But we decided that a non-recyclable material that you can't put in a landfill that will never break down or will take many thousands of years to break down is not good. And we decided that things that are temporary are probably going to get thrown out. Mm-hmm. My boss showed me a photo of a giant wizard head floating down the east river in new york city that looked like a theater prop or like a parade prop or something but like that thing was entirely made out of styrofoam and that's really the only way anyone knew how or still knows how to make organic shapes rocks trees uh things like that is to carve styrofoam right so we kind of made it as a rule and it's still kind of stayed a rule which is great that we don't work in styrofoam um, and a lot of people have a hard time with that because it's cheap, it's light, it's easy. It does solve a lot of yeah, theatrical kind of criteria. The sometimes, yeah. yeah, most of the time. And yeah. a lot of people who are uh, of some level of experience, that's the only thing they've ever worked with. So it's really hard to get people to change things, uh, change materials, especially if they're coming to you as a specialty builder. I'm a specialty builder. I have very specific skills and things that I know how to do. And if someone asked me to work in a material that I wasn't familiar with, I would probably say no, or I would say I can't guarantee the budget that we've talked about. I can't guarantee this delivery date that we've talked about. And that makes a lot of those things a non-starter for a lot of theater companies, which is very difficult. Can I can I uh, highlight the irony of while you're and this is this is just to speak to the difficulty of like making the choices because sometimes it's what's most convenient is that while we were t- while you were talking about styrofoam which I agree on you with you on um, we were given water in yeah, in styrofoam house. cups. I know. But that but at the same time if that's what's available like. It's like either that or we go and like put our, our, our mouths on the spigot, right? Like, Which you could do, like, I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to, Kevin, I want to ask you about uh, like 
actually bridging from that thought about um, like who has power as a like a larger shop. How much sway do you have with your suppliers to make decisions about lumber? Because there are some areas like it's like like a Home Depot or Rona or that. Like it's becoming harder and harder for like someone who's getting one or two sheets of uh, as she could to get something that isn't sustainable just because they as a large company may not be stocking it because they don't want to yeah. double stock stuff, right? Yeah. They don't want to stock the certified stuff and the non-certified stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so s- there's some element of it that's like, that's the direction of that industry is going. As a, as a larger shop, is that something that like with your suppliers you have some influence or there's a conversation going on about that? Um, yes and no. I feel like we could. Uh, we don't necessarily have uh, sustainability as one of our as a part of our mandate. Um, so it's not a thing that we look for particularly. It's a thing that because the nature of our suppliers are quite big, um, we can get them to investigate this, mm-hmm. that, or the other. Um, and certainly, when Luan's not available, like I have gotten Revolution Ply before as a stand-in. Um, uh, but it's not a thing we look for as a rule. We kind of joke, the carpenters and I joke that it's like, we're not in the woodworking trade, we're in the MDF trade. Right. Because <laughs> it's all we use, right? Like, if, even our plywood is it covered in MDF. Like, it's, yeah, and it's not great. Right. Yeah. Uh, medium density fiberboard. It's like uh, if you took super fine sawdust and you... Uh, filled it full of glue, and you squeezed it into sheets. It's super flat, and it's, like, perfectly straight grain. Like, there's no grain to it. It's just a perfect sheet good for making cabinets or anything that you're going to paint. It's the perfect thing. Um, but it is, I think, compressed with formaldehyde or whatever, uh, and it's not it's not good for you. And the dust is super fine, and it'll give you cancer. Um, yeah. But you don't have to putty the end grain. No, you don't have, you don't have to. <laughs> exactly. And seriously, that and that... <laughs> Totally. Yeah, no, and like, how many hours a week does that save a company like us? And we churn at out scale. Exactly, yeah. right? And we'll churn out. We'll do, like between the four carpenters there. Like, we'll do a hundred flats a day if we need to. Like, there's no problem there. And I would argue the bottom line or getting the show up is more important to your employer or your client yeah. than your respiratory health. Yep. So there's a larger issue that. Yeah. Well, if we want to talk about health, so <laughs> just I guess this is a bit of an aside. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is a bit of an aside, but um, so I uh, was working at the Tarragon shop. I had just recently quit smoking, so yay me. Um, I was eating a bacon sandwich from Tim Hortons, um, and because I just quit smoking, I was a little bit overweight, and so I was going into work um, and listening to the CBC. And the CBC had told me that there was a WHO report about um, cancer, essentially, and they uh, added they added something to the Schedule One carcinogen respiratory carcinogen list. Which includes, uh, oh no, it was, it was a story about red meat, which is uh, proper, like it is in the same category as asbestos, tobacco, and sawdust as things that we know as a society definitely cause cancer. We're not saying these are equivalent. Obviously, asbestos is super bad for you compared to the other two. But we are equally as sure that sawdust causes cancer as we are that asbestos does. Totally sure. Fantastic. Right? Uh, just And the same as red meat. And, like, that's that's the thing. So, you know, that's, yeah. Um, yeah, that is a thing. Why smoking? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because smoking will give you cancer faster. 
It takes less tobacco smoke than sawdust. Well, probably people spend less time. Most people spend less time around sawdust. Yeah. The um, people in this room, perhaps. Not yeah, and specifically right. sawdust. Like, if you are in a lumber mill, generally part of your job is outside, and if you're a construction worker, generally part of your job is outside. So the outdoor ventilation tends to take care of it. But you're if an, if you are a primarily indoor woodworker, you're just screwed. Yeah. Wow. This has been Fun Facts with Kevin yeah. Hudson. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Totally. Delightful. Um, <laughs> scary, scary. Yeah. Um, so one of the things you were saying, Ryan, earlier, which is, I think, really important, is the specificity. Um, Ian, I wonder if you can speak to, some, like, what is your, like, top top tip, if you will, for your students? Like, is there some sort of, like, a, a thesis to your class that you could... Uh, yes, but... And uh, so usually it's a little unexpected. I get, so I get asked this question like, as an artist or theater maker or whatever, um, whatever. Uh, <laughs> someone's like, what's the what's the first thing that I should do to become more sustainable? And uh, so I've spent you know a decade and a half researching like different sustainable things that you can do. And from an environmental perspective, from a social perspective, and from an economic perspective, it turns out the most like impactful thing you can actually do is to like fill your theater with audience. Uh, so the best thing that somebody can do is to make work that people go see. Um, uh, so for to, to put some numbers behind that. If only we knew how. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, usually it's easier to be like, I'm going to choose between these two lumber suppliers, or I'm going to choose between these two lights, then I'm going to fill this house with people. Um, I, I realize that. Um, but, uh, like, okay, so uh, there was a study in 2008 of, of West End theaters in uh, London, England. I feel like I always have to specify that when I'm in Ontario. Uh, and it was something like, Audience transportation accounts for a third. Front of house is like 28%, and that was like for like refrigerators and lighting, mm -hmm. office space, and then like production, it's like 9%. Uh, and that was like a, a, like a, um, that was like a, a dense urban area where a lot of people get around by public transportation or some sort of shared uh, present, uh, uh, transportation system. Uh, and even moving to Toronto, uh, if I remember correctly, um, like Harborfront Center, 95% of their impact is just from audience traveling to and from because they get like millions of visitors over across the entire program that they do throughout the entire year. So like they could cease operations entirely and would only reduce their carbon footprint if everybody still came. Now, of course, there'd be the question of who would come, how many people would still come if they weren't doing anything, but like... All other things being equal, that it would be like 5% reduction environmentally. And that's like all of their office space, all of their studios, et cetera. And then production is then a small part of that. And like other areas of methods without getting like too wonkish about it is like both between instrumental and, and intrinsic social impact research that like the arts and perceived value and the creation of community and individual identity by far are the most powerful tool that we have. And in North America, the average above ticket spending for any arts event is 26, like 2650 in the local arts environment or the local economy. And so there's all these positive impacts of making the arts 
Um, and the most important environmental one is actually if you put it in the context of what people would be doing if they weren't coming to the theater, that many houses, when they're full, are like 50, 80% of a reduction from what they'd be doing at home, watching TV, et cetera, depending on what they've got plugged in. Like, there's a whole number of, of caveats in there, but that, that it's a significant reduction just to amortize that over as many households as fill a theater space. So can I break that down? Yeah. So because so the show goes on every night, Yeah. whether one person or a thousand. Yes. So if you fill that thousand seat house with people, that's 999 people who aren't watching TV, you know, or doing whatever it is they're doing at home. Yes. And so their lights are out. Presumably they've turned off their whatever. And so they're not spending the energy and the theater spending the energy anyway. Right. So that is a net gain for interesting. Yeah. Huh. And and all the things that we could do, like material choices, energy choices, which are like all the really great stuff that you can do for the environment is all actually kind of as a theater artist kind of boring. Um yeah. because it's things like the most impactful thing that you could usually do in, like, in a theater, like in the audience chamber, is about your air handling. Like the main thing, like the, one of the big benefits of switching over to LED lighting is not actually the energy consumption of the lights themselves, but the amount that they reduce the heat gain in the space so that your air conditioner is working less hard. Because your air conditioner, I will guarantee you, is built for the maximum capacity of your space. So if you're like five people in tech or... You know, if you're an opera, thousands of people, it is the same machine drawing the same amount of energy to cool that space. Uh, and so, like, in the building management side, you see huge gains in cultural spaces in, like, uh, having uh, adaptable systems or more, more data-driven. Um, like, if you could connect your box office to your rehearsal schedule uh, to your air handling system, which is hard and expensive, and Internet of Things can be kind of creepy. Um, but with all of those things, that you can have more impact than any of the choices that you can make on stage. And actually, um, I would advocate to my students, like, don't limit what you're making on stage, because if you get people to see that, and, like, you're in it for the art, and having a conversation about contemporary issues, and this is, the, like, this issue is one of the biggest existential questions of our time, that's more important than, like, uh, like the smaller impact that you can have, the lever that you can have, it's that balance between the burning tires and and what you're saying. Yeah, fascinating. You can do it, Pip. It is objectively Dr. bad Rebecca. to burn tires. Hi there, I'm interrupting to thank those of you who have chosen to support the title block on Patreon.com. I really enjoy doing the show, and I'm not going to stop while I have the time, but it does cost a bit to do, to do the show between uh, equipment and web hosting, not to mention extra mic rentals to ensure that special events like the Bellows sound as best as I can make them. So I'm asking that you help out to cover those costs and help me to continue to capture the story of Canadian theater design. Go to Patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode. It really helps. So, so that kind of goes back to the idea of like it's before you even get in the space that that these changes need to occur, 
And I guess, I don't know if anybody has an answer to this question, but what what might we be able to do as theater artists, theater, like people who are hands-on making these things bef about those choices before? Like, do, do we have any say in those things? I don't know. I have very little say in how good the shows are that I really <laughs> <laughs> Here, 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 here. Yeah, and how many posters they put up, yeah. and how good they are on Twitter and Facebook to get people to come. So that's the only thing I can control is the materials choices yeah. and the uh, disposal of those materials. So that excites me because I feel, and one thing I really like about being a scenic carpenter, and one thing I really like about being a person who wears steel toes and lifts things at a workplace is I have a direct hands-on connection to the waste we're producing. So I used to joke at the theater a few years ago that I want to see everything before it goes in the garbage because those people in the office are throwing out all sorts of stuff that we could use again, that we could put on stage. They keep buying new desks and new office furniture, but we have good office furniture and good desks that I could easily fix and have fixed over time. So I get off on that connection to and hands-on um, a, a connection. That's the only word I can think of. That I can't. I get to actually do something physical about it. I was telling Kevin a little while ago that I discovered coroplast is recyclable, which is that milky white or clear vertical kind of corrugated plastic. Um, kind of looks like cardboard. We use it in theater a fair amount. And I did a little bit of research. This is another thing that people can do who aren't creating the shows um, and running the venues um, and buying the HVAC equipment is do a little bit of research. Like if you type in a couple of things in the top of your web browser, you can find out all sorts of stuff. And the city of Toronto basically was like, yeah, that's recyclable. And uh, I forget, I think it was somewhere else that I found out what it was made of and then I found out that that was recyclable. And we had an entire set where the face of all the flats was coroplast. There was no skin ply of any kind. Um, and so all we did at the end, and we couldn't glue it on because it's coroplast. So at the end of the show, I just pulled the sheets off of the frames and the frames kind of like crumpled and paralleled and we shoved all that in the dumpster because that has to go in the landfill. Um, and then I took all the coroplast and kind of folded it and taped it and used some twine to hold it together and just put it out with the recycling like it was newspaper or cardboard and the city took it. And I'm assuming they sold it to somebody who wanted to melt it down and make it into something else. And that was like super exciting that that material that is new and different and non-traditional was so easy to dispose of um, because there's no, there's no way to dispose of anything that's made of wood that has a metal fastener. You can get rid of things that are made of wood that don't have metal fasteners in them. I, it's hard to be a lot harder for a plywood riser, but any, uh, I think in theory you can chip anything that's made of wood and turn it into a mulch or a compost or something that can be reused or repurposed. But as soon as it's got a metal fastener in it, they won't take it and you can't do anything with it. So everything we do has a staple or a yeah. nail or a screw, so it's really difficult. Um, but that was one of the only things, and the, it was a very easy, direct way 
to dispose of it. That's another issue is that we spend a lot of money on dumpsters. I could probably convince the theater I work at to get a second dumpster for recyclable material if it didn't cost anything. But we don't even have room for a second dumpster. So the logistics are so difficult. But if the city's going to come and take it, it's so easy. So making things easy mm-hmm. and presenting things as easy to the administrative people that you work for is one very easy way. If you can, you know, prepare what you say and present it in a very clear and easy way that doesn't take any extra work or money on their part, people are going to be like, yeah, sure. You just got to pull it off and bundle it and put it on the sidewalk. Great. Yeah, sure. And we don't have to pay money per pound to dispose of it in a dumpster. Everyone's going to be stoked on that, but it takes a little bit of time and a little bit of research and you have to know your materials and you have to be able to figure stuff out on the internet, but it's a lot of that information's out there. And I think it seems like there's lots of universities learning more about things and putting lots more studies and lots more information on the internet. So if you can find it and you have a little bit of time, you can, I think, save a lot. And, and actually what you just described is pretty much when we're teaching sustainability, what we're doing is like, because there's no way for us to comprehensively know, like all, everything is, even as general as we might make our, our process, every material is something specific and every person is more or less interested in it, that, that when we teach sustainability becomes much more about the specifics of like, what is an area that you're interested in making more sustainable? And what are the tools that you need to like, like what's the research that you need to do and what are the systems in place that would allow you to do that and how do you find that information so that our instruction becomes less about like do it this way and more like here are the tools for figuring out a different way to do something um, that is important to you or that works within the system in which you, you know, there are rules to every system that you're in and you need to like work within those to, you know, express that value that you have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to take your class. Um, it meets on Mondays from 11.30 to 2.30 in the winter. There you go. Cool. I think right now uh, it's and no fault of mine. Uh, it is uh, kind of popular right now, so I don't even know. Like, you don't have to be a York student. to. I, I have no problem with people coming into it. I don't know where everyone's going to sit. They put us into too small a classroom last year. We had people sitting on tables and... And, and uh, a filing cabinet in the corner of the room. So. I mean, that's heartening. That's what you want. You want a lot of people who are excited to learn about this. Have yeah. you <laughs> Because the internet needs another podcast. Yeah. I love a good podcast. People. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, so you're saying that there's, there's, you know, people are trying to learn about different elements. We've, are, we've talked about lighting a little bit. We've talked about uh, set. Um what other sort of things are your are your students asking about that we might be interested in other specific specific right spaces where we can be sustainable there's a question in front there's a question in the front for for those of you at home she's got her hand way up it's pip it's pip it's Pip. It's obviously Pip. Who else would it be? Um, because one of the when we talk about other areas, uh, one of the things I see a lot now, of course, when I'm working on shows, is that where do we buy our props? The Dollarama. Where do we buy our costumes? Our den. H and M. Like places that are very disposable and very much like we. You just buy it and you get rid of it for the show. What? Fast fashion. Fast fashion. Like fast materials. And then like who keeps that stuff at the end of it? Except for 
me, I have a house full of Dollarama crap because I firmly am a hoarder. Um, no, that's not a thumbs up, Rebecca. Put that thumb back down. <laughs> yes, Kevin. Can I take this one? Yeah, please yeah. do. So one of the things that concerns me in our uh, particular culture is the aesthetics that we work to. And I think it's relevant because we are naturalists, essentially. Not in the nudity sense, but... Um, we We're learning so much about Kevin. Today. Naturalism <laughs> is naturalism is the aesthetic that we work under, right? So if 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 the story calls for a hand prop, it has to be that thing. There's no abstraction anywhere, really, unless that's the point. Unless that's the point, right? But generally, it's the not, Canadian right? tradition. The is, Canadian tradition, yes. yeah, is 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 you know, it's the Shakespearean model. It's it's whatever. It's it's um, it's not even the Shakespearean model, but it is. If it if it says it in the script, it has to be on stage. And the three walls you're looking at have to be just so. They're very detailed. And they're very unique to that situation. So every show then becomes a different experience. And everything that the playwright has said is on there. And it's all we... Because we, as a culture, exist in a Dollarama, H&M culture, then that's where we get our stuff from. Because it's just we're just reflecting what comes off the page, right? Sure. Um, but that's the, you know, and that's the most economically viable way to get all this yeah. stuff. Um, we would always, you know, I, like most people, I think I have a love-hate relationship with Ikea. Um, I hate it because as a carpenter, like, I cannot buy a sheet of plywood for the same price they can sell me the finished product. And, like, that's crazy. Um, so if I want to sell somebody a piece of furniture, like, it's going to be... 15, 20 times as much, even if I didn't do a very good job. Like, it's, it's just the economy of scale there is, is irresistible. It's irresistible. Um, but what we do with that furniture is we'll buy, so instead we'll go buy an Ikea cabinet and then spatter it in paint, and then it's no good to anybody because it's been spattered in paint, so then it goes in the landfill at the end. Whereas if we were working under a different aesthetic, maybe we have a couple key pieces of furniture that are nice and can still be unique, and, you know, somebody like Ryan or myself can put some effort into it and make it look good and finish it up nice and then sell it afterwards so somebody can take it home. But This is one of the yeah. downsides to the indie theater and what I think is the majority of the theater that we all participate in, probably in Toronto, is shows in spaces that don't, that aren't, uh, that are found spaces or they've just been acquired by that company for a few weeks where I work, we're very unique theater company that we have lots of space, not lots of space, but we filled our space with lots of stuff. Yeah. So we don't buy a lot of stuff from the dollar mm -hmm. store because we have a large stock. This is a simple principle that um, is a, a lot of uh, people have tried to alleviate the disposable nature of scenery by just saving it all. Yeah. And that's very complicated and very expensive. But if well, you do it in that, the right like, way. Stratford can do because yeah. they have lots of space, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you could go and borrow stuff from them, which we do often and Shaw, like we pull stuff and we give them very little money um, for the stuff that we borrow. Um, that is a huge, I think, way to save things from going in the landfill. Can I play um, devil's advocate to that? Sure. Because um, I've heard specifically a designer bemoan um, David Hookstra's stock. So David Hookstra is a prop man about town. If you need a prop, you go to David Hookstra because he has it somewhere. Um, and so his props end up in all Toronto shows. 
And this designer was saying how he hates that all Toronto shows look the same because they all have the same props in them. And like, I hear him, right? Like I've seen the same wooden bucket in all the shows that require a wooden bucket. And it's like, oh, I've moved that wooden bucket in cargo vans 17 times myself, right? And That's just, the definition mm. of sustainable, isn't it? <laughs> no, it, it yeah. absolutely is. Yeah, no, it totally That's is. It. Yeah. And so what I'm arguing is that uh, the aesthetics that we're working under make sustainability extremely difficult. That's that's the point I'm making is that if you're trying to be really truly like and you know, put it put the page on stage, then it's going to be unique and you don't get to reuse anything almost as a rule. If, if I can uh, No, oh, you, well, go, you, okay, go, right. you go. You go. You go. So what's like, so funny about a wooden bucket? I just think it's very specific. <laughs> it's just yeah. a specific thing that you are We've cranky about. We've been talking about, about spe specificity all, <laughs> yeah, all yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. Just that goddamn wooden bucket, <laughs> man. Wooden bucket. Hate that thing. Look, I never forget a bucket. Uh, and uh, and now I've lost what I was going to say. It's something about it was something, something it was about not about buckets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was something about like it's either that there's something is so specific that there's only so many of them so that they are reappearing and that end of the aesthetic. Mm. extreme that you know, I need a very specific thing because this is what's called for but because it's an obscure thing there's only so many of them that I can have access to or it's such a ubiquitous thing that it's an entirely disposable thing mm. that I don't necessarily like, that I can go to Ikea that I can go to yeah. H&M that I can go to anybody who's like producing something swiftly and a lot of our inventory our material inventory is coming from those two ends of of what's going on there's a like limits aesthetically which doesn't answer the question um except to say like just throw out the prevailing yeah. canadian theater yeah aesthetic. Right of the bucket yeah i mean i mean like isn't there like first of all kevin like there's only so many ways a wooden bucket can be a wooden bucket uh <laughs> and second of all is there a way that it's possible for us to make company catalogs like those at YPT and like those at other bigger houses that do have room for stock accessible to indie companies so that we can get away from that Dollarama so uh, economy. Yeah. There, there have been, uh, and I think, uh, and some initiatives here, but I'm also thinking of like, there have been attempts to create like shared inventory. I know at York, when I first got there, we invested in a system called stage bits which is like a web-based cataloging system. It doesn't exist anymore, so don't need to take a note on that. It doesn't exist anymore. They went out of business because the economies of scale for serving mm -hmm. just, this is why I was asking about distributors, is that when you're dealing with a lot of materials, especially raw materials, you're not like, nobody makes sheet goods just for theater. And okay, very few people, if they do, you could probably find an exception. But of all the materials, uh, none of that material science goes just to us. It's not that like uh, arts production in general is something like 4% of GDP. It's not gonna like sway mm -hmm. the construction, which is like course, 50%, yeah. right? Um, so the attempt to, and you know, been involved in initiatives that we're trying to do like a budgeting tool that allowed you to do the budgeting around carbon for material parallel to something. And all these things, because we're dealing with such specific and oftentimes very minimal amounts of things, have been very hard to implement the infrastructure or get to a scale where they're where they are sustainable initiatives. Like there's a couple of examples like there uh, that I can point to outside of Toronto, like in Austin for a while, down in Texas. There are a number of theaters that like shared and cataloged their storage space for like 
flats, like mm. more generic materials, and had a system for that and got a little grant money there. In Los Angeles, there's this, uh, the like the equivalent of TAPA, LA Stage Alliance, runs a warehouse that essentially they figured out that if you were to offer storage to small theater companies that cost less than it would be for them to go to a public, like public storage or like mm -hmm. extra space or whatever, that and bring it into one warehouse that, that can be managed by someone who is knowledgeable, and there's this whole plan about adding a shop to it as well, that you could try and get that stuff out of the waste stream so that somebody could do it. But like in that system, you're talking about there's a partnership. I think they've got like 40 theaters involved, and they're talking about a membership base of 300 or 350. Like getting to the scale uh, and something that's like accessible that everybody can use that doesn't involve a lot of data entry that people can go to over time. Because how many people have like whatever storage space on site or off site mm -hmm. is like packed, and I've been saving stuff for a decade, and now I have no idea what's in the back corner. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the same thing, like you said, flats, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, right? Like, I've, I've definitely built a thousand flats. Definitely. I'm sure you've built a thousand flats. Maybe. And, like, are they all in the... They're probably all in the garbage. Like, I, I would say, like, at least 950 of them are in the garbage. When YPT oh, probably liquidated... Probably, probably 990 of them. We liquidated <laughs> our scenery storage because we moved scenery storages. And I think six or eight people came with vans and trucks and took a lot of it. Yeah. Which was really exciting because we just like put it out, I think, on the internet in some way, and people like found us in this sketchy back alley. <laughs> um, it's, well, that's gone now, but so, it was so that's very sketchy. A, that brings a, up a, an interesting point because we're talking about, you know, how, how do we know that you have, you know, a bunch of desks and chairs at YPT or like wherever people have things in storage? And do, do you think that maybe the, the internet becomes a, like now that we have access to so much more information widely spread, is there a way to put this kind of information out there? I don't think so. I think the internet, it, I think these ideas of catalogs are doomed to fail because the people leave jobs so frequently, administrators change over so frequently, computer systems crash or get replaced and then you don't have that anymore. So when you were talking about this exciting idea of things being cataloged and barcoded, my first reaction was, well, if we just knew each other and we knew the person's name who knew about the stuff, like when you said mm -hmm. David Hookstra, like I have David Hookstra's phone number. Like if we all had everyone's phone number, our community is small enough that we could call each other on the phone and ask if you have it or come down. When people call YPT and ask if we have a wooden bucket, we say, I don't know, come down and see, like, and we'll look through. We don't send them the link to our proprietary catalog because it's do it doesn't work. It doesn't, a lot of these systems that people try to implement that work for a short time, but like I was saying to Kevin beforehand, like sustainability was quite a goal and value at YPT. Uh, when the previous TD was there, and it was a it was a personal value for her, and her and I got excited about it, and we tried to do some things, but she moved on, and now there's a new person, and they're just trying to learn the job. They don't have enough time mm -hmm. to do these things. So I think uh, uh, a more human or a more personal way of of connecting and sharing these things, like we're not LA, mm -hmm. 
you said there's 40 companies and 300 members. Like that basically is the whole Toronto, Southern Ontario scene. I think maybe I'll, I'll just add, I'm a huge fan of automation and search algorithms, and I'm very glad to live in the time that I do. Uh, so even to sort of double off of that more human approach might lead to it, as we're talking about this, there isn't a catalog. I'm thinking if I needed a thing, I would search in the group Production Resources Toronto, and I would at least know who last asked for it and be much further in the search, and probably if they found it, would just be able to go to them and get it. So maybe this catalog sort of exists, but the idea of a central location is the is the thing that, as you're saying, the scale of like having 350 members or 40 theaters involved would be necessary to have that. It's possible that as central a location as we can get is basically, it's likely south of Bloor, <laughs> uh, and and well, and not much further. You can't afford it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think your central location thing is interesting also when it comes to, and I don't know a lot about AI and computers. I don't. I wish I didn't have to use computers, but I do. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things about computers that I've sort of understood is that the computer has to be in a central location, and we have to buy these servers or pay for a company to host this data, and I don't think that's going to... It's, that's going to be very difficult to sustain for a long period of time. Just have a big Google sheet. Yeah, well, you either get... But like, until Google starts charging you for their space, and then everyone's just going to bail. Yeah. Like, think, YPT can't even find a company to provide email service for us. We can't even, like... I can't, if you emailed me a Vectorworks file that was larger than, like, five megabytes, it would bounce back because our computer systems are so poorly managed and poorly maintained. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been complaining about it for years, but there's no way to, or seems to be no will to fix it. So I, I think you're right. I, and what I was trying to get to was your idea about Facebook and uh, the different groups we have available on there is maybe that knowledge and information doesn't have to be stored in a server or a database that knowledge is in all of our brains and so like you were saying if you can find out whose brain it's in that person is probably going to work in the industry for i don't know how long is you know <laughs> average 10 years before everybody bails maybe 15 but like <laughs> it, it depends on the it depends on the role but uh, we've talked about that before and it's not 10 or 15 years right <laughs> the average is probably low yeah uh, but I think that maybe maybe there's some hybrid solution between people and computers that there, that we can find a way to share that information um, without having to depend on someone to pay for the system. Like you said, that company that was trying to sell that computer product or you know uh, digital product went under. So mm -hmm. their servers and their catalog and all the photos they took of all the stuff is just gone. Yeah, no, it's like the scale at which we work is not large enough to make, like, it, we don't work in a field of big data. 
So trying to take a big data approach to managing our resources is sort of like, and then it goes quiet for a couple months, and then someone comes back to it, it's like, oh, this data's out of date, because somebody was talking about, do you have this thing, do you have this thing? And I've actually found in, in moving through a few different communities in my career that it, I've seen stuff, uh, the places where I've seen stuff happen, I have either been in like, when I was living in Los Angeles, it was through a Yahoo group, where people would do the same thing, something very similar to what happens now with Production Resources Toronto. It's like, who's got this thing? Where's the gurney this month? Like, because yeah. how many gurneys can, a, especially an indie community, support? Or store? I know of two. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, yes. I, I think. <laughs> well, and that's that's where I was. I think where we've kind of stumbled towards is that, um, like, like you said, if you search on Production Resources Toronto, you will find somebody who was looking for that thing and maybe found it, maybe didn't. And it doesn't. That's not a big data approach necessarily. That's just a search. And if you've worked for any length of time in the industry, you've done three or four shows. You know where to find all the wooden buckets in the city, right? Like that's <laughs> that's how that is. And so it is. It is. There's so many buckets. Um, but like you know, like we know where the gurneys are. We know where the whatever <laughs> is, right? Um, and that's cool. You can find what you need to find. But it doesn't address. I don't know. This one designer's complaints. Like I uh, that bucket. That bucket. It, the problem is that bucket keeps showing up in all the shows, yeah. and I'm tired of seeing Does that bucket. A picture of the bucket. I, I'm not sure I know which bucket we're picture, talking about. Picture, picture, picture a wooden bucket. It's that bucket. Um, but specifically, specifically though, the gurney, the two gurneys. Yeah. I've seen those two gurneys in lots of shows. The buckets and the gurneys are a little less in this particular case. I would rather look at a mug on stage and go, oh, I remember that from another show, then I definitely saw that in the Ikea catalog. Sure. That, that particular piece of it, where maybe it gets to sort of have an additional piece of story with it. Mm. Uh, I, I absolutely have been very angry at an independent theater company for using the same curved staircase in the four musicals that they put on. Yeah. But also, they made it. And that was better than... The Ikea, so, sure. so, yeah, yeah, the but, Ikea staircase. But I think that has limits. The Dollarama yeah. staircase. Yeah. That has limits. <laughs> so like, um, if you... Yeah, it's new. There's Dollar fifty though. Like aesthetically, and maybe this is specific because aesthetically speaking, like, I don't know if I could tell the difference between sort of 17th and 18th century whatever, but lots of people buckets. would. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So like, there's... <laughs> buckets notwithstanding industrial revolution yeah there's there is like some specific stuff that because there was a show done however long ago that was edwardian we have all the edwardian stuff and that's made it into all the victorian shows as well even though it shouldn't well fucking be there it should not be there right but like there's that kind of slippage and that aesthetic um mush that happens or like blurring that is the danger that I think this designer was complaining about. Okay. Uh, buckets notwithstanding. Like old stuff is old stuff. But it's not. No, I know. That's what I'm yeah. saying. It's like there's an idea that old totally. stuff. Totally. And that's the thing. So because specifically yeah. David Hookstra has specifically one era of bucket, like then, <laughs> <laughs> then, then now we're just sort of trying to, we just are, uh, ask to accept that this bucket is a stand-in for all the buckets everywhere. 
This is the prototype. <laughs> this, okay. this, is, this has devolved into a lot of conversation about buckets, but we do have a question and then, oh. or a comment, and then we'll come back. Well, I, I, I would propose that perhaps the best uh, sustainability investment you can make is to hire a good production manager because mm. it is their job to know who has the gurney this month. It yeah. is their job to know who to call to ask about whether styrofoam can be disposed of or who can like where you can get the best deal on a possibly reusable material like we're we're all here because we're interested in this because it's our job to be interested in this Mm -hmm. so uh yeah facebook is really helpful but posting hey can you solve my problem for me uh it is is a cheap way of saying hey i need a production manager who can solve my problem for me it's the big data approach to production yeah Yeah. Yeah, and like mixed results so uh i know uh I I am reluctant to divulge and help people sometimes who post on production resources on Facebook because that's literally them taking my job away from me. Uh, So I I think the most sustainable thing you can do is to invest in human resources who can save you from spending all your time on the Internet trying to find the right IKEA chair. Oh, yeah. Yes. The end. Once again, the answer is hire a production manager. <laughs> that could be the end. That's a very good I was going to make a really awful joke, but Rebecca made such a good point. Now I feel bad. <laughs> no, I don't feel bad. It's like a production manager's job to know if that's a Victorian or Hornian bucket. <laughs> and that is, I think, the end of our... No, but um, uh, well, I'll let you sort of, if you have anything to, to what, sort of closing remarks. List? Yeah, what's your, there you go. I love it. I love it. Very important. What is your bucket list for sustainability in theater? Anyone? If I, we, Ryan and I talked about this earlier, and we said that none of us are advocating for less scenery because we're scenic carpenters. <laughs> but I, I actually think I kind of do, to tell you the truth. I, I hate seeing box sets. I say hate seeing like period box sets with this specific trim that I have to source from blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I love building it. Don't get me wrong. And I've built it all day long, but it doesn't need to be that. Like we're all here because we're a creative industry and there's the, the main obstacle I see to materials sustainability is literally artistic concessions. And if, if the artists aren't willing to go out on a limb and choose a different aesthetic or just, take a risk in some fashion to try to put bums in seats. I'd, I would no offer a different trying. point to that point that it's not artistic concessions that we need. I think it's administrative concessions. Mm. I think part of one of the biggest detriments and impediments to us producing theaters in a sustain or producing shows in a sustainable way is that we're all running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Like we've got three weeks, we got <laughs> 300 yeah. bucks and we have to do all of this shit. And we don't make smart choices and we don't make uh, thought through choices. And we, I think if we all slowed down and took a deep breath and uh, I was going to say when uh, Rebecca said, get a production manager, I think if we if anybody had another person, when one designer's running around to try to get everything, it's very difficult. So if you had any there's two people or you ask somebody, do you think this is a good idea or do you think I can get this somewhere else? I think that is one of the biggest ways we could do things differently is to slow down, which might cost more money to do fewer shows or to do, you know, spend six or eight weeks on a show instead of six or eight days. 
Um, a lot of people bring drawings to me uh, as an independent person and to me at YPT to like, hey, can you build this? And it's like two weeks. So I can't do things with good material choices in two weeks. I would have to just buy the quickest, cheapest stuff I could find and bang it out. Um, and I think that's where we need our administrators to help is to start putting design deadlines at reasonable times out from uh, opening night, which is not two weeks, is not three weeks. Um, How many weeks is it? Would you like, like I am doing Beauty and the Beast, which is a very large show. Mm -hmm. It's probably the largest show yeah. per dollar spent that's going to be done in Toronto this year. Um, and we started working on the show in June. Like we had designed prelims in June. The show opens in November. So I think that is like eight weeks to 12 weeks is a reasonable amount of time to source and produce things. I don't think and that's, artists, with, that's with your infrastructure in place. Like you have a PMTD head carp yeah, props. Yeah, yeah. So when I like, freelance PM, like I did uh, Morrow and Jasp in June, mm -hmm. they hired me like eight or nine weeks out. And I was like, I'm handcuffed. I can really only do so much for you in yeah. nine weeks. So, and I've worked for Fujen, Asian Canadian theater company, where they asked me to look at the production budget 14 months out when the when the mm -hmm. producer and the general manager were making a production budget and they showed it to me and they were like are these numbers reasonable and i was able to be like you don't have any labor here for props like someone's gonna have to go and find all this stuff and that like and then when they asked me to do the show eight months later i couldn't say no because like that's what i've been asking for is input way in advance mm -hmm. so if you can slow down and look forward and you know, coerce a designer to to focus on a show three four months out. I think you have a much better chance of being able to do these things in a reasonable amount of time and a reasonable amount of money and with minimal. If you want to add sustainability as a criteria, you'd need to start way in advance. Yeah, I was I, I was going to jump onto the the the. the or I will jump on to because I had the thought around designers also respecting that. And I speak as someone who's, I'd say, the majority of the time is working as a designer, is respecting the deadlines too because in not a designer position, you know, I I was producing a show over the over the summer and we had, you know, our designer took our design deadline and was like, well, the show doesn't open for this amount of time after that. So I've got all this actual time. So read it as flex time, but... And if you looked back at like, well, this needs to happen here and this needs to happen here, so it needs to happen here, there's like that mutual respect, which I think like if I, if I were to say like here are the things that make for a sustainable show, I'd say like uh, give it the time that it needs, be specific about what you choose to do, uh, invest in, in the human resources, invest in like the people and the human relationships, and that's also what theater's about, all in an effort to try and make good work. And if you did those things like no matter what you ended up using, whether or not you used like FSC certified sheet goods or like on uh, fire tires, on fire tires, <laughs> or you used LEDs or like uh, like 
on fire tires for lighting, <laughs> or your costumes were made out of wooden buckets. Ra- wooden buckets, or on fire tires, or organic cotton, whatever that is. If you like, actually like, this is the thing that we need because we thought about it, and this is what best serves what we're trying to make. And you did that in like a humane way, where we weren't trying to put everything on stage too quick and for too cheap. Uh, I think that you'd go much farther than if you made an individual choice within there. And that's what valuing sustainability is ultimately about. Fantastic. Well, thank you all. This has been really wonderful. Pip, you have a final word or you just want to join me? Oh, I was just going to do the closeout if you wanted to do the closeout with me. Um, Amazing. Well, thank you so much to our panelists tonight. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Thank you to all of our audience for coming out tonight. We love you. Thank you also again to Dahlia Katz and the Witchwood Theater for hosting us this month. And thank you to Matt. Thanks, Matt! Uh, Have another beer before we go. Take your bartender. Give him a hug. I don't know if he's into that. Consent first. And that was another recording of The Bellows, recorded at Witchwood Barns in Toronto, Ontario. In just a few weeks, an interview with designer Alan Brody. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good, with a voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes Gives a Review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlocksYA and on Facebook.com slash TheTitleBlockPodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to TheTitleBlock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the title block.